Well, this evening as we continue our study through kind of the, uh, the doctrine of God, uh, what often is called theology proper, we are getting close to the end of paragraph two, and we've kind of slowed our pace down because of the, the vastness, and yet we could spend the rest of our lives just on this one area of the study of theology that uh, we would never exhaust it. We've looked at the attributes of God, and we've seen, in light of the attributes of God, how does that work itself out? That God is self-sufficient, He's independent. And even though He is independent, He is intricately involved. Today we continue paragraph two. Look at the whole paragraph, just again kind of seeing it in its greater context. Paragraph two states, God, having all life, glory, goodness, blessedness in and of himself, is alone in and unto himself all sufficient, not standing in need of any creature which he hath made, nor deriving any glory from them, but only manifesting his own glory in, by, unto, and upon them. He is the alone fountain of all being, of whom, through whom, and to whom are all things. And he hath most sovereign dominion over all creatures, to do by them, for them, or upon them whatsoever himself pleaseth. In his sight all things are open and manifest. His knowledge is infinite, infallible, and independent upon the creature. So as nothing is to him contingent or uncertain, he is most holy in all his counsels, in all his works, and in all his commands. To him is due from angels and men whatsoever worship, service, or obedience as creatures they owe unto the Creator, and whatever he is further pleased to require of them. My prayer is that as we've been teaching through this, that, that you're beginning to make a little more sense of these paragraphs. When maybe the first time we read it, you're like, what is this even saying? But as we've been walking through, we have opportunity to see, I pray, the glory of God upon display. And tonight we're going to look at that specific section of, in his sight, all things are open and manifest. His knowledge is infinite, infallible, and independent upon the creature. So as nothing is to him contingent or uncertain, he is most holy in all his counsels, in all his works, and in all his commands. And really the... This section kind of breaks itself up pretty easily. First of all, we see uh, not from here, but from the whole of Scripture, that this is disseminating into a way for us to think of that number one, that God sees all things. That God sees all things. Those of you who have maybe worked through the the catechism and the, the questions and answers, can you see God? Who can, who can answer that for me? No, but he always sees me. Yeah. He always sees us, but we can't see him. That no one has seen God. And you think about that fact that God sees all things. That he sees us. First of all, I believe it's a source of comfort to us. Or it should be a source of comfort. That nothing is hidden from God's sight. It's a, it's a great comfort that Sarai 
In Genesis 16, verse 13, then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are the God who sees. For she said, have I also here seen him who sees me? You, you can see even in uh, the, the way the English translated, you dash r dash, that's just one title of God, El Roy, the God who sees. He sees the big things and he sees the little things, just like we saw a couple weeks ago in the study of Luke chapter 12 with the, the sparrows. In Luke 12, verses 6 to 7, it says, Are not five sparrows sold for two copper coins? And are not one of them is forgotten? And not one of them is forgotten before God? But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. You know, sometimes I think the temptation in our sin when we're going through trials is to feel alone. And to be reminded that God sees, it's a great comfort to us. That God is not distant, that he is not caught off guard. He's not saying, oops. But he sees, and he's intricately involved. But also we understand that that idea that God sees is not just a a source of comfort, but a source of conviction. Sometimes I, I think it can be a tendency that we can try to Uh, manipulate children God's watching you but the truth is there that is true that God is always seen that all of our ways are before the Lord as Hebrews 4 13 says and there is no creature hidden from his sight but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him and then he gives us that exhortation of whom to whom we must give an account That the Lord sees all things, that nothing is hidden from his sight, that there's no question there. And all things are laid bare before him, but all things are seen and will be placed upon us at the judgment. As Romans chapter 2 verse 16, speaking of, In the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. How is God able to judge the secrets of men? Because he sees all of our ways. Think of Adam and Eve when they were trying to hide themselves in the garden. Is this a a contradiction when God says, where are you, Adam? Could he not see them? No. It was God revealing to them the foolishness of them trying to hide their sin. That everything is laid bare before him. And so the fact that God sees all things is kind of that double-edged sword. It's It's a place of comfort, but it's also a place of conviction but notice how the the paragraph says it in his sight all things are open and manifest laid bare revealed brought to the light but then it says his knowledge is infinite infallible and independent not only does god see all things he also knows all things that's actually the next question in the catechism does god know all things What's the answer there? Yes, but what's the rest of it? Nothing, what? Nothing can be hidden from God. Yeah. These two are very similar that God sees and he knows because if you see something, you know it. Those, but we see how it's slightly different and how the, the writers of the confession 
speak that God doesn't just know all things kind of, but to really bring clarity, they use three terms, that his knowledge is infinite. Psalm 147, verse 5. Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding is infinite. A lot of you guys are in school. Or actually all of us are still in somewhat of school. All of our knowledge is still growing. And yet we need to understand that God's knowledge never grows. That he is already knowing of all things. He knows all things past, present, and future. Not just information's sake, but everything about them. And not just data. As First Chronicles 28 verse 9. As for you, my son Solomon, know the God of your father and serve him with a loyal heart and of a willing mind. Too bad this wasn't really true of Solomon his whole life. For, why? The Lord searches all the hearts and understands all the intent of the thoughts. God doesn't just know the outside information, but he knows even the thoughts that go on in our minds. He knows our own intentions. That's how in Romans 1 that, that, that all the thoughts were evil continually. That even our thoughts are laid bare before the Lord because nothing is hidden from his sight. Because his knowledge is infinite. But his knowledge is not just infinite, it is infallible. What does that word mean? We're, we're using some big words here, but infallible. Yeah, no mistakes. It, it doesn't have any error or wrong. Uh, you know what, as much as I believe the judges in America seek to make good judgments, sometimes they make wrong judgments because they don't have all the facts. But since God knows all things, his, his wisdom is infinite, he applies that in perfect ways all the time. That there's no unfairness with God because his truth, what he knows is without error, it is perfect. Ezekiel 11.5, similar to kind of what we saw in First Chronicles. Then the Spirit of the Lord fell upon me and said, Speak, thus says the Lord. And what does God say? Thus you have said, O house of Israel, for I know the things that come into your mind. God is able to be a just judge when he knows all of the information. But it's infinite, it's infallible. And that third eye that they list there in that sentence, independent. That it's not dependent upon any creature, so as nothing is to him contingent or uncertain. Being independent, he's, he's not waiting for us. Or that we can't give him any information that he doesn't already possess. That's how in Romans eleven thirty four Paul writes, For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counselor? No one can be God's counselor because that would mean God is lacking, that God would be gaining more information. Therefore, God would be changing. And God says, I, the Lord, do not change. So if God knows all things, 
even before we say it, why pray? Because often if, if we kind of break down our prayers, often it's just kind of telling God things. But he knows it. So why pray to him? He's our father, yeah. And he longs to hear what's on our hearts. And just understand that prayer is more than just telling God a few things. Some information. But prayer is an act of worship. When we know that God knows things, it should cause us to come in greater faith. Not that he just knows, but he has the power to act upon it. But also, it should cause us to be able to come to him and to pray in faith knowing that he's not left wondering how he might be able to accomplish things. And he allows us also, he allows us to participate. We, our prayers may be the means that he's ordained mm. in his sovereign will to accomplish what he wants to have. Yeah. We get to participate and be part of the blessing. Mm-hmm. You, you think what... We can just sometimes say without thinking about it, uh, Lord, I, I pray that you would be with so-and-so or so-and-so. He's always with them. So how can we challenge ourselves to be praying differently, to be speaking to the Lord in a different way that causes us to pray more fervently, other than just kind of a, reading down a list of things, but that we come to the Lord with confidence Considering who we get to pray to, considering what he can do and challenging us to call to him in faith. For prayer is a wonderful time of worship. It's also a time that we align our will to God's and say, Lord, your will be done. Again, we see the whole of Scripture. That doesn't mean we don't come in faith. We don't come with persistency. We don't come with all those things. But at the end of the day, we do say, Thy will be done. But we pray that His will would be in accordance to our will too. Then we see in the confession that God is not contingent upon us. He's not waiting for us. He doesn't change because of us. But then it says, he is most holy in all his counsels, in all his works, and in all his commands. That God knows all things, that he sees all things, and that God is holy in all things. I kind of wonder if uh, the writers of the catechism actually kind of follow this, because what's question number 13? Can God do all things? He can what? Yeah, yes, he can do all his holy will. You, you, you see how these questions are actually kind of supporting even this paragraph in, consecu- in consecutive things. Our family, we were listening yesterday, and um, R.C. Sproul was, uh, was speaking about holy, and he said, here's a simple definition. Holy means different. I mean, if you had to break it down to just kind of a bare bones level, to be different, 
We see in scripture that it means to be set apart, that's something that's unique. So what this sentence is saying, that his counsel is unique and different. His works are different and unique. His commands are unique and different to a perfection level. Notice, first of all, his counsel. We see that in Psalm 147, 5, Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding is infinite. His understanding is infinite. His knowledge is infinite. Therefore, his counsel is perfect. It's not lacking. Sometimes we can give somebody counsel, but it's based upon information that we have. But God has all information, so therefore, his counsel is perfect. So the psalmist can say, your testimonies are true. That's why we need to go to him first in all matters. The temptation can be to go to fallen human beings, and then when we think we've got it figured out, we go to the Lord to make sure. But we need to flip that on its head and go to him first to ask him what his counsel is. It's holy his counsel is perfect. Secondly, his works are perfect. His actions, they're perfect and they're pure. That idea of holiness, Isaiah 6, 3, holy, holy, holy. I saw the Lord seated on the throne. The, the glory of God, on all of his holiness. And all of his works are holy. All of his works are unique and, and different, but they're perfect. In the study guide this week, I asked the question, what about God commanding Israel to wipe out other nations? If all his works are holy, how is that work a holy work? How how is that command a a holy command? I encourage you to chew on that. And lastly, his works are holy, and lastly, his commands are holy. Holy. That all of his commands. Sometimes we may think, children obey your parents and the Lord for this is unholy. We may want to add that part. Our sinful flesh. Or we may have our own little desires to change God's commands. But they're holy. That they're perfect. And he works all things according to the counsel of his will. As Ephesians 1.11 says, in him... Also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. As we get into the decrees of God or kind of the plan of God, we have to bring all of this foundational truth with us. That's where we can get ourselves into a lot of error if we don't begin again with a, a right view of God. I've been just considering uh, something, I think it was uh, Norm Geisler in his uh, systematic theology, how much Psalm 139 kind of hits on these topics and how the psalmist responds to it. Just as we close, I want you to see, first of all, he begins looking at the omniscience of God. O Lord, Psalm 139, You have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down, my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. 
You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways, for there's not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You have hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. Notice he's looking at the omniscience of God and he's already beginning to worship the Lord in, in light of it. Then he speaks of the omnipresence. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I make my wing... Make, if I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. Then he moves into the omnipotence of God. For you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works. And that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret. And skillfully you wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed. And in your book they are all written. The days fashioned for me when as yet there was none of them. As we study doctrine, it can be easy to just let knowledge puff us up, to gain these high and lofty views and, and think and we, and like we have a nice catalog of information in our mind. But we see David recalling these doctrines, and yet they lead him to praise. Notice how he continues, How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How great is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would be more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, you bloodthirsty men, for, the, for they speak against you wickedly. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate them, O Lord, who hate you? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. Notice it's kind of a, a prayer where he's seen the Lord defamed and he cares because he's seen the glory of God. And then he ends, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties and see if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Is that, is that like us? Is, do we long to know God? And does the truth about who God is change the way we pray? Does it change the way we live? Does it change the way we think? Because we spend this time on Tuesday evening not to just build more information. Not to just even memorize catechism questions. But that these things would, by the grace of God, impact our lives. What an amazing truth that God sees all things. He knows all things. And he does everything with a holy fashion. His will is completely holy. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for uh, these truths. And Lord, we could dwell on these truths much longer. But Lord, as we have had time, 
Lord, I pray that we would be like David as we think upon you that there would be comfort, that there would be conviction, that there would be a renewal of dedication to you because of who you are. Lord, that there would be a, a confession that is deeper. Lord, we ask that you would stir in us. Thank you for your word and thank you that you've given us your word in which you've revealed yourself. Lord, we do praise you. Lord, because you are the infinite, awesome, all-knowing, ever-present help in time of trouble. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.